Well, good morning. So the update on Will. Um, Will was diagnosed with a mixed germ cell tumor in his brain. It's attached to the pineal gland. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's inoperable. They can't take it out. Um, the pineal gland is really like in the center of your, of your brain. And um, the good news is that it responds extremely well to treatment. So the biggest obstacle for Will right now is to um, get up to a level of strength to endure the treatment. Um, he's at the, the Mayo Clinic right now, and they're feeding him through a tube into his intestine. The goal is to get that to where it's feeding into his stomach. Um, they have to, they've gotten his blood pressure back to normal, his oxygen back to normal, his fluid levels back to normal. The next goal is to get his nutrition um, to a state where he would be able to in, endure the, the treatment. Um, so he will remain out there with Gary and Alona for, as far as we know, this, this next week. Um, the goal being that if he does get to that level, he will come home and begin treatment. Uh, things to pray for are this germ cell tumor is normally found in children. Um, and so the places that treat this tumor are normally children's hospitals, and they won't admit Will because Will's too old. So pray that there would be a place that he could go um, to receive the treatment and uh, that it would be close by. Um, but there is a, a, a need to praise our Lord. We, in going over there, the prayer was that the doctors would find out what was wrong, that there would be something that could be done, and that um, in the end, Will would have an answer to, to what's been going on with him. Uh, he, he's canceled his prescription for MS. He doesn't have MS, um, so that's a, a praise. <clears throat> so just continue to uh, <clears throat> pray for strength for the family, um, especially Gary and Alona. You know, Gary, Gary's so... Uh, so emotional, so <clears throat> pray, for, pray for Gary and Alona and Julie and Kathy. <clears throat> and for the, the doctors, Joe McHale's been by to visit. The Stratman family has been by to visit. We're thankful for members of the body there in Scottsdale. So just, um, this is a, a, a day to rejoice, really. We know what's, what's wrong, there's, there's an avenue of treatment, and if this goes well in the will of the Lord, Will will be back to normal. So this is uh, the, the best news I think we could have gotten for what was, um, what was going on, but it's still just hard to take. <clears throat> so if you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. couple months ago, I spoke on uh, Philippians chapter 2, and it was this idea of unity through humility. Uh, we know that the letter to the Philippians was a letter that Paul wrote in response to a gift he had received that was delivered to him by Epaphroditus while Paul was um, in prison. And so Paul has written this letter of thanks, really, back to the church at Philippi, and in it we have these... Um, 
just beautiful pictures of our Lord and his humility and uh, and a great exhortation in how we are supposed to be living uh, a humble life, a life with the saints that would lead to the praise of our Lord. And this idea we have in chapter 3 is pressing towards that mark. Um, We know that one day we will be like our Lord and Savior in glory. Uh, the, the pressing towards that mark is that we would like to see that achieved this side of glory. Um, we know that it is, in a, in a way, not possible to attain because we still have that sin nature within us. But nevertheless, we strive towards that mark. And verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 is going to be very um, appropriate for today. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> It doesn't say to, we don't rejoice necessarily in our circumstances, especially this morning. We don't rejoice in the fact that Will has um, brain cancer. We don't rejoice that in our sense that Allison, our sister Allison Kamstra, uh, still can't see, um, or that we may have aches and pains. We don't, we don't rejoice in those things, um, but we are thankful that we can rejoice in the Lord and the the medicine for, for pain, the medicine for suffering, is to dwell upon our Lord and to remember that we can always rejoice. And rejoicing is the greatest weapon, really, we have against sorrow and worry and pain, uh, to be reminded of the things that we have in Christ. Um, this is the idea that we have. And this idea of finally, he's not really saying in conclusion, because you see there's still another chapter that we have after chapter 3. He's not saying finally in conclusion. He's just saying summing up what I've said and for the rest and for what I'm going to say now. Um, really, I, I take it as um, when all is said and done, uh, rejoice in the Lord, no matter what your circumstances are. Everyone here has, has struggles. Everyone here has worries. Everyone here has doubts. We all have those struggles. We may not share them openly with each other, and we may not even bring them before the Lord openly, but he knows and this is the idea. When all is said and done, rejoice in the Lord. He has, he has won the victory. He has secured all things for us. Continuing in verse 1, To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ." Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. We're going to look at these first eight verses as kind of a a breaking point of the things that people are trusting in at the point in time Paul is writing this letter. What we see here is a response to the pride that was building up in the church at Philippi, and we remember Philippi is a um, city that was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. So they have this national pride of being um, this you know, Greek kind of like hero 
um, Alexander the Great's father coming through and conquering this place and establishing the city after his namesake. So they have this pride in where they're coming from. They also have a great Roman influence and they take pride in their citizenship of Rome. So they kind of have like the best of this Greek-Roman thing going on where they're very proud of, of who they are and where they come from. And it has led to not necessarily a false teaching in the doctrine, but it has led to different sects exalting themselves above the others. And we've had the exhortation in Philippians 2 to humble yourselves in order that there might be this unity. And in chapter 3, we have these things that would hinder such unity. And so the teaching comes that he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Um, he's telling them that if these things creep in, it's, you're, you're going to have a really hard time. You're, you're not going to be one body as you should be there in Philippi. You're going to be broken apart, and then you're basically not going to be what you should be. And so this idea of dogs, this isn't like our, our pet dog, you know, man's best friend. This is an idea of a, of a filthy, mangy, scavenging, careless animal, just a beast. And so he's saying, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers or workers of evil. Beware of the concision. Um, your translation might have the mutilation. And really what he's addressing here is the Judaizers that would come in and preach that it's not enough just to trust Christ. It's not enough just to trust Christ. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law of Moses. And circumcision was really a outward symbol that you were going to obey the law, the whole law. And what Paul is saying is beware of these people. And he calls them the mutilation because all they're doing is mutilating you. If they tell you that you, you need to trust Christ and then be circumcised, well, then they're just, you're just letting them cut your flesh away. And we kind of have a, of an idea of this back with um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, where um, the prophets of Baal are calling upon their God and they're doing all this and he's, nothing's happening. And so to show that they're serious, that they're devoted, that you know, they start cutting themselves. And it's really a pagan tradition to do this, that it would show forth the seriousness of what they're doing. And all it is is drawing attention to themselves, which is what Paul's warning against. So beware of the mutilation. And here in verse 3 it says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So this is a threefold topic. We are the circumcision um, and it's the idea of made without hand, circumcised of the heart. Our flesh from the heart has been cut away. Um, we now worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's this idea. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is a reminder to us that we, we have to constantly remind ourselves, because we tend to be a prideful people, there's nothing good in our flesh. There's nothing good in what we actually can do. Um, the only good thing comes from God. The only thing that has been done has been done for us. Um, what Paul is warning against is once this teaching creeps in of you have to be circumcised to be saved and you have to um, follow the law to be saved is, is going back under Old Testament law and that you have to do certain things and you earn salvation. And we know that's completely unscriptural. There, there's no... Where in the Bible that would teach you you have to do something in order to earn uh, salvation. Salvation is by faith alone and the finished work of Christ. 
And we see that um, Paul, is, Paul is encouraging them that they're doing the right thing. And you have to beware of this coming in. And he's saying that what happens when these people come in, they exalt themselves with credentials. They have some weight behind them in the physical realm that they wield around. And it says, have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And Paul's going to go through a list of seven things that he would say why he, has, why he could have confidence in the flesh. One thing I want to address before we get into this is this idea of legalism. Legalism was, in biblical terms, adding works to salvation. Um, you had to be circumcised, you had to obey the laws, you had to honor the, the holy days, um, you had to eat certain foods, certain foods you couldn't eat. Um, that's, that's what we call biblical legalism, um, adding works to salvation. Another form of legalism that we use as application in the present day is making the commands of man and giving them to you as if they were the commands of God. Um, that's legalism. So if somebody in some fellowship or some gathering is telling you that you need to do this, this, and this in order to be right before God, and that they're just what the church stands for and the Bible doesn't say anything about them, that's legalism. Um, they're making the commands of men out to be the commands of God. So that's something we have to keep in mind. We are called to obey commandments. There are, there's over 100 commands in the New Testament that we are called to obey. Um, obedience to commandments is not legalism. That's what we should do. But we only obey the commandments that are given in the Scripture, not that somebody else comes up with. So just something to keep in mind if you ever hear that word thrown around to find out what exactly are they really saying. Are these commands we are supposed to follow, or is this just something that somebody's come up with? So getting into these things, that these seven things that Paul would have reason to glory in the flesh, he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So the first thing that he glories in is his heritage, who he is. Actually, nothing that he's actually done. He's just glorying in the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day. People that wouldn't have been circumcised the eighth day, we think of Abraham wasn't circumcised the eighth day. Um, Ishmael wasn't circumcised the eighth day. All of these people that were saved out of Egypt were not circumcised on the eighth day. There are a lot of individuals when a proselyte comes in, not circumcised the eighth day. Paul had the ability to say that he followed the law, or his parents followed the law, and had him circumcised the eighth day um, according to the and according to the, the law in Leviticus, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was of one of the uh, faithful tribes. We know that uh, Benjamin and Judah down in the south of Israel. And it says a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And really this is the idea that he probably grew up speaking Hebrew. Hebrew was probably his first language. He wasn't a Hellenistic Jew. Uh, he didn't have all this Greek influence. He was a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Um, it says, as touching the law of Pharisee, we know that a Pharisee was the strictest sect of the followers of the Orthodox um, Jewish religion, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Um, we all know that Paul was zealous. He was an extremely zealous man. Um, before he was saved, he was zealously wrong. Um, 
And we see that even when he was zealously wrong, when the Lord comes, he says it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, meaning he, he, he was doing it just out of his own will. He wasn't, it wasn't something that he was just pushed to. It was something that he had to make himself go out and do. It was that zeal for um, all the tradition, all of the pride, all of the heritage that he grew up with. And we have to then take this and apply it to ourselves. In what way are we glorying in any of these things? So concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So according to the law, Paul would be pronounced uh, blameless, meaning that if he were to do something wrong, he would go and, and offer the proper sacrifices. And there was nothing in his outward show that you could point at and say, you're guilty of this. The problem with that, the problem with the law, is the law can only condemn you. The law can't set you free. Um, Only the righteousness of Christ can set you free. So this idea that Paul's laying all these things out of all the great things he's done, who he is, the zeal he has, I mean, it was really unmatched, we see in the scripture, the zeal that Paul had. So we take this and we apply it to, to ourselves. Do we have a pride because we've been in the assemblies for generations? Do we have a pride because my grandfather was a traveling preacher and he was able to go around and and do these great things? Um, Not necessarily anything that we've done, but we have a a pride in where we come from, the heritage that we have. Um, Do we have a pride in all of the activities we're involved in? Look at all the things I help out in, um, letting everybody know. These are all things we, we have to come and to realize that when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the Lord, it doesn't really, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and that's where we get in verse 7. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And this is something, this is, um, this counted loss is an idea, it's called the perfect tense. You can look it up at a book. Um, which is what I did, because I don't know Greek or study Greek or anything like that, but I can read the books that they write. It says, I counted loss for Christ, and this is the perfect tense, which meaning it's something that happened in the past that still has an effect going on today. So he counted those things lost, and he says, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Today, I still count it loss. I count it loss again. Why? It says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, In order to be saved, there had to be a point in your life where you looked at everything that you were trying to do to get into the right standing with God. Um, For me, it was trying to obey the Ten Commandments, trying to fulfill all the sacraments of the Catholic Church. It was to be a good person outwardly. There was all these things I was trying to do to, to gain a good standing with God. And I had to come to a point when you see Christ on the cross and you have to make a choice. Are you going to hold on to everything that you've been doing or are you going to count it loss and are you going to reach for Christ for salvation? We all had to make that choice, whether you fully understood it or not. Everything that you were trusting in is now counted loss. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. We all want to know Christ more and more each day. That's the purpose. We want to be made into his image. In order to be made into his image, we have to know what he's like. 
So how many of us on a day-by-day basis seek to strive for these things? We come every Sunday, we get together, we remember the Lord, and that should, in a way, set our minds right for the rest of the week to live like the Lord. Um, this idea of, I've count, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Um, the idea is the things that, the, that he was holding on to, the things that Paul may have gloried in at the time, they were really just, they were just dung. They're useless. It doesn't amount to anything. There's really nothing in it. He's just, I mean, imagine the picture. Um, you have... Christ and the riches of glory and eternal security, all these things on one side, and imagine Paul over here holding on to his own excrement. That's really the picture that's going on. So he let go of dung, and he reached for everything in Christ. It seems like a no-brain choice. Like You don't even have to really think about it to make that decision. But what, what's the reason why we don't? Why? Because we're prideful. And this is the thing Paul is, is preaching against, warning them that when these teachings come in, whenever legalism is present, whenever um, uh, holding faith in, in works and things that you've been doing, even amongst the, in, the, in the chapel, it brings division. And when that division comes, pride, pride is the reason. And so he warns them about this. It says, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And we have this idea that the righteousness of God is imputed to us through faith. Um, faith in believing that Christ is the only way, the only way to have eternal life. Um, part of the problem today is we have this idea that uh, Christianity is something that we add on to our daily lives. It's something that we just kind of, we, we lump in there with everything else. And what Paul is saying is, well, first you have to count everything as lost. You have to get rid of everything else, and then you follow Christ. Um, this is something that many of us, uh, myself included, haven't completely done. We haven't completely accomplished this idea of cutting away everything else. We've been circumcised of heart, and now we need to live this out. We need to show that so that people can see. Right now, they, I mean, you guys, you guys can't see my heart. Even with an x-ray, they won't be able to see what God did. But God's saying that it's been done, and I need to show that out um, to the rest of the world. So it says, he had his own righteousness. Paul did. And we all had our own righteousness. But it was all filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah. It wasn't really anything in the eyes of God. But God is willing to give us the righteousness which is of God, by faith. It says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So these are three things we're going to look at. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We talked about power two weeks ago um, when we were looking in the book of Ephesians, the power that we have access to. So the power of his resurrection, we see in the Old Testament that when God wanted to refer to his power in a moment, he referred to it as when he parted the sea for the children of Israel to escape from Egypt. Now we see in the New Testament, when it refers to the power of God, it's in his resurrection, and the resurrection of the Lord. 
well, why is that the power? Why is that a, a display of the power? What did it accomplish? And these are all things that we need to think of when we apply it to our life. Um, it accomplished the, the victory over sin, the power of his resurrection, accomplished the victory over sin. It accomplished the victory over death, and it accomplished the victory over the grave. Um, these are all things that we have a hope in, and these are all things that have been accomplished, and we have the power to do it. So when we see this principle in Romans chapter 12 that we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, it's really saying that we've died to ourselves, but we don't have to die, physically die. We live that we may die. It's a complicated thing, and it's something you have to take time to think about. But physically, we've died to our own desires, we've died to our own needs, and we live for the things that are spiritual. So to know him and the power of his resurrection, that in our daily lives, we would see victory over sin. Are we seeing victory over sin in our daily lives? If we're not, then we need to look to the power of his resurrection. It's there to be attained. It's there. We have uh, complete access to it. Victory over sin, victory over death. Do we just follow after our own desires? Are we following after uh, the will of God to be sanctified? So it says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. If we are achieving a victory over death by the power of his resurrection, and if we are dying to ourselves that Christ may live, well, guess what? The world is going to hate you with a blind passion. The world just despises it. Why? Because the world takes pleasure in people like themselves, people that are out for their own, people that want their own things, and that would step over anybody to achieve it. Um, so you will be partaking in the sufferings of Christ if you accomplish this first step in knowing the power of his resurrection, being made conformable unto his death. His death has had a limitless effect of blessing. His death accomplished uh, our salvation, and the proof of it is in his resurrection, but his death accomplished all these things. So in order to be made conformable unto his death, we should be living lives that are accomplishing this blessing for God. These things should be taking place. And if they're not, and we can't, we're not aware, then this is something we need to get before God and make sure that it's being accomplished. And in verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so the picture here is um, Paul wanted to see, um, Paul wanted to reach that, that level of attainment that people would look at him and see, man, sin has no grasp on him. He has complete power in the will of God to do exactly what God wants him to do. That's what Paul was after. By any means, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so you might think, well, Paul, you sound pretty arrogant yourself, talking like you've attained, and this is what you're after, and this is what you want to achieve. And in verse 12, it says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after it that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Um, see, the Lord has already done it for him. The Lord's already apprehended him, and one day he will be like the Lord. One day, if you've trusted Christ, you will be like him. Christ has already apprehended you. He, you belong to him. Praise the Lord. But today, 
we want to app- apprehend unto those things. We want to grab a hold of it. it. We don't want just the Lord to have a hold of us and we just kind of hang on until he comes or until we're made like him. Our goal is to strive to reach that. Um, how many of us are, are comfortable? Uh, this is something that Kathy and I worry about in, in our lives. Um, with a baby, we've been warned that that won't be as much of a problem. We won't be comfortable. We'll be uh, tired and we'll be um, cranky and these certain things with the child. But we worry about being comfortable in the sense that we're not really going on for the Lord. So we have to remind ourselves that we are not even close to having apprehended, but we continue to pursue that. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If, if that's not, if you guys don't have a, a verse set out for what's your end of the year, next year, this is a good one to have, um, a good goal to have. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Are we really, are we really pressing? Are we really trying? Or are we just holding on? I think a lot of us sometimes we're just holding on. You know, stuff is hard. The Christian life is hard. And uh, the Lord told us it would be. <laughs> and when we enlisted, when we signed up for it, um, I think we thought that maybe he wasn't telling the truth. But the Lord always tells us the truth. And it, it, it is hard. And the, the struggles at work, um, the struggles in, with health and with family, with friends, you know, my parents not, not being um, believers, there's struggles in all these things. But it's a reminder that when we face those struggles, we start back at verse 1, we rejoice in the Lord, and then we, do all, we make sure all of these things are out of it, all of these things that would bring legalism and pride and, and strength in our flesh, and we're reminded that we trust in Christ, that we simply have to apprehend what he's already apprehended for us. So in verse 15 is the exhortation, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, and that word you may have is mature. Um, the meaning of the word really is mature. Be thus minded, and if anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So as much light as you have as a believer in the Lord, you are supposed to be accountable unto that light. And if you're not being accountable unto that light, don't worry, God will reveal it to you. And that's that idea. The more we are faithful, the more he's going to give us, the more he's going to show us, the more he's going to reveal. If we're still stuck in a place where we haven't seen any growth in, in years, um, this would be an idea to come before God and say, God, reveal to me what's the cause. What am I not being obedient in? Most of the time, I would say 100% of the time, you already know what you're not being obedient in. Um, because it's already been convicting you. So you just need to respond to that conviction, repent, be done with it, look towards Christ, and, and keep on going for the Lord. Verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, 
whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Um, We don't want to be the enemies of the cross. We don't want to cause people to turn away from the Lord. There are many that Paul brings up that were walking with him. We, the, the one we always think of is Demas. Um, Demas went astray loving the things of this present evil world. Um, one of the things that characterizes these individuals is they mind earthly things. If our focus throughout the week, we get through the entire week, we come here for the Lord's Day, and we remember the Lord and we think, wow, you know, we really didn't even spend any time thinking about the Lord this whole week. We've been minding earthly things. And if we've been minding those earthly things, what are we going to do to change it? Because what happens is we get up and and there's always time. How do you say this? There's always. There's always time to do things that aren't important. But there's never any time to do things that that are important. Um, There's days where it's like, man, I I have to cut the grass. I, I have to take out the trash. I I have to get my tires changed. I have to do this and this. Well, reading the Bible, well, you know, I could probably do that tomorrow. Well, I should probably call and encourage Will, or I should call and encourage one of the saints at the chapel. Well, I could could call him tomorrow. I could write that card tomorrow. The things that matter for eternity, we can push till tomorrow. And the things that matter for nothing, it's like, no, I got to get that done today. I mean, that's got to be, I should have done that two days ago. We need to make time. We need, to, we need to not be minding earthly things so much that we exclude um, eternal things. Why? Why do we do all these things? It says, verse 20, For our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Um, and... If you want help to take your mind off of earthly things, you remind yourself that this is not your home. If you've been saved, you don't, you don't belong to the world anymore. You are a citizen of heaven. And there's no safety in heaven, by the way. We don't, we don't say, oh, I'm going to heaven, I'm, I'm safe. In, we're safe in Christ. Christ is our security. That's why we have a citizenship in heaven. He's purchased a place for us, and he's preparing that place for us. And so we have to be reminded that we live for that time, not for what's going on in the day-to-day, the things that are going to perish. In verse 1, we're going to do in closing. It says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Paul really, really loved the saints at Philippi. And believe it or not, I really love each and every one of you. I really do. And I pray for your spiritual growth, for your growth in the Lord, your daily walk. Um, There are times when we think of all of the family that we get through the work of each of us saints, that as we continue to serve the Lord, the Lord would continue to build his church. We would see the saving of souls, and we would get brothers and sisters welcomed into the family. I one day pray that um, my mom and dad will one day be called brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it says, um, he's, they're dearly beloved and longed for my joy and crown. And the idea here is Paul has an idea for the, the judgment seat of Christ. 
He wants the saints at Philippi to be a, a joy and crown for him. And in order for that to be so, he doesn't want these false teachings to creep in, these false ideas, these prideful ideas to creep in. And for some of us, they've already crept in. They're already in our lives. They're already in our thinking. And we have to set our mind right on how we're going to tackle this, how we're going to battle what's going on in our mind. Everything's been laid out in Scripture. And if you get to a point where the, the, the sorrow is too much or it seems too big of an undertaking, we rejoice in the Lord. The Lord has secured all things for us. We rejoice in him. He says, stand fast. Stand fast, not on your own. Stand fast in the Lord. And so that's the exhortation for today, for the rest of the week, for the rest of our lives, that we would stand fast in the Lord, that we would press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that in all things we would seek to attain what we will one day be given. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice in the Lord. We are thankful for all that we have in him. We know the, the suffering physically that's going on. We know the fear physically of what's going on. But when all is said and done, we rejoice in the Lord. We pray that that would be um, something that is seen by this world, that we have a hope, a sure hope, that we have a peace, a perfect relationship with you, our Father, all because of what your Son has purchased for us. We're thankful for the time we had to remember him this morning in his person, his, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that he is indeed the Lamb that is worthy to be praised, seated at your right hand. We pray that we would live um, for that day, the day that we will see our Savior face to face, that constantly we would be looking to his appearing and that we live in that light, that we would shine as we should. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.